Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. To the unofficial first day of Adventure Week. That's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. So just relax. Make yourselves at home. Everybody gets to be a kid today. So I'm surprised nobody took us up on the, uh, on the little kitty chairs, but if I weren't preaching, I would be right over there in that red chair, I can guarantee you. So we're, we are headed into a week of fun. It's going to be a blast around here. We have had so many hands, and I just want to take a minute before we get too deep into our study today. If you've helped at all in any aspect of Adventure Week or you're planning to help this coming week, uh, could you just stand? I just want to recognize you. They have put in so much work into this Adventure Week. So go ahead and stand. Thank you all so much. Take a minute, look around. These people have been working more full-time than me in this situation. So we are looking forward to an awesome Adventure Week. And you know, as it, when you're headed into something like this, it presents a little bit of spiritual warfare. In other words, Satan knows exactly what we're up to starting tomorrow. Really starting today, we're, we're setting the tone today. So I just want to take a minute um, and pray. Let's pray over this Adventure Week. Let's lift up the hearts of these little ones that will be coming through the doors. 80, we've never had 83 students pre-registered before. 85 now. And I know half of y'all haven't signed up your own kids yet. So make sure you do that before you leave today. But 85 kids, we're trying to get to 100. That's the goal. Will you help us? So let's pray. I want to I just take this to the Lord because this is a big week. And, and you know, we, we talk a lot about the next generation here. It's, it, they are the future. And the more foundation that we can build now about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, oh man, that'll set them on a course for the rest of eternity. So let's pray. Let's lift up our workers, our students in Jesus' name. God, we we're headed into a war. We're headed into battle, and we know it. You, you've marked it out for us. It's on the calendar. And I pray that you would just give us your strength. Bind the hands of the enemy. I pray that you would restrict him. I pray that you would put a hedge of protection around this place, around our people. God, we pray specifically over the stomach virus that has been wreaking havoc in this church. Uh, God, we can't have that this week. And I pray that you would raise up everybody who's dealing with that, who has dealt with it, who, who's been exposed to it, that in Jesus' name you would just cancel it, that we would be able to march forward in boldness and confidence this week. I pray that we would get to 100 children pre-registered by tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. God, only you can do that. We pray for every teacher, every teacher's helper, Every adult involved, whether it's snacks, refreshments, uh, activities outside, craft time, the skit, assembly, all of it matters. All of it is building a foundation on Jesus. And we could not think of a better person, a better Savior, a better God to, to spend our weeks talking about with these students. 
Go before us, God. We need you behind us, around us, on all sides. Lift us up. We need you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're beginning a brand new sermon series today called My Statement of Faith. And I don't know if any of you guys saw the live. I did a little Facebook live on Thursday, was it? Or maybe Friday. It was Friday. And I explained, as I'll explain again, this is the whole point. To finally get here in the month of July, halfway into our year of being founded, I see some of the shirts out there looking good. That's always my favorite color this year. And then next year, it'll be a new color. But founded, founded blue is my favorite color this year. And we've been kind of setting the stage to get to this point today. Because now we really start a six-week adventure on what do you believe? And more importantly, why? Why do you believe what you believe? And then the ultimate question is, can you explain why? Would you be able to articulate the reasons why you believe what you believe? It's a big study. Um, you can spend a whole couple of years in seminary studying apologetics. And that's essentially where we're headed for the next six weeks, a study in apologetics. And in fact, today, I, have, I honestly have so much to go over that we have a handout. I've never done a handout before, but I got a couple of guys, good looking gentlemen in the back that are going to hand out this paper. And this is simply to be a fallback because there's no way I can cover everything I have to cover today. With that being said, we're going to start at the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean the beginning of the world. By the beginning, I mean, how did we get here? By the beginning, I mean, would you be able to articulate and defend what you believe about biblical creation. And maybe you're here today and you don't. You don't know. In fact, you've had a lot of doubts about biblical creation. Is it really just as simple as God spoke it <laughs> into existence and it's all here? Can we really take Genesis 1-1 at its word when God said, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth? If it's really that simple, how do, I, how do I logically defend that position? How do I scientifically back up what the Bible has to say about God creating everything we see in six days? And then he took a nap on the seventh day? It sounds like a, it sounds like a movie, a fairy. It sounds like a Hollywood script. How do I defend that scientifically? And so today we embark for the next 25, 30 minutes, we're going to give you a crash course and how to defend biblical creation. And I have to put that quantifier because there's a lot of different variations of creation nowadays. There's a lot of Christians, believers, who would say, yes, I believe in creation, but I believe that God used certain parts of evolution to get to creation. But we'll, we'll get there soon enough. So grab your handouts, grab your Bible, or at least follow along with me on the screen. We get to put a puzzle together later, so that'll be fun. It'll help you get in that kid mindset for Adventure Week, right? We're going to begin in 2 Timothy 3.16. There's no better place to begin than the Bible and what God has to say about the account that we read in His Word. 
Like, did God really part the Red Sea and have the children of Israel cross on dry ground? Did Noah really build an ark and two of every species got on that boat and they floated around for 40 days during a worldwide flood? How do we logically believe that? How do we ascribe to that scientifically? We got to begin with the scripture. It says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16. If you don't have this verse memorized or you don't have it marked in your Bible, this is the, I'll do you the biggest favor. You need to mark this one. You need to highlight this one. Put it to memory. All scripture. Some of scripture, bits and pieces of scripture, a verse here and a verse there. Well, everything except the literary books. No, the Bible word is all scripture, okay, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, where we have to begin is either we believe all of this or none of it. That's really the only two options. What we can't do as Christians, what we cannot afford to do as believers is cut verses out. Well, this page is just kind of hard to understand and it's definitely hard to explain. So we don't have the option of picking and choosing bits and pieces that we're going to believe and not believe. In other words, if God did not create the world in six days, then you cannot prove that he died on the cross for your sins. And you definitely can't prove that you're going to heaven when you die. It's connected. If Noah didn't build a boat and get on it with two of every species, then you can't claim to pray to God and get strength for going through a rough valley in your life. It's either all or nothing. Either God is God or he's not. Either this Bible is his word or it's not. That's the foundation we have to start from. The Bible is the ultimate authority, the ultimate authority. So on your handout, I don't have that verse written down, but you could write it down if you have a pen with you or make a note on your phone, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now the good part, Colossians chapter 1. Where are we headed with this biblical creation stuff? Colossians 1, 15 through 17 gives us a good base. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God because none of us have seen God. If we could see him, it would make a lot of this easier, wouldn't it? But we have to take him at his word that he did appear to those in the Old Testament, but now we have the whole of scripture. So he's not required. There's no imperative need for him to appear in flesh and bones to us. But Jesus was that. Jesus was the full bodily image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16. So we know we're headed into this creation topic. For by him, all things were created. So we read it in Genesis 1.1. Now we read it again in Colossians 1.16 that God, through Jesus, made everything in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and by him, and he is before all things, excuse me, and in him all things hold 
together. We're going to come back to that verse at the very end. I'm going to show you a YouTube clip about Colossians 1.17. It'll blow your mind. It's really cool. But I want to, and this title is at the top of your handout. This is the main thing that I want to drive home and equip you with today. And that is this phrase, the science is on your side. The science is on your side. See, we, I get, I, and I've gotten in, com, in commentary, arguments, debates, if you want to. I try not to do that because arguments don't really go anywhere. But when, when you're talking with somebody who does not share a viewpoint of biblical creation, they try to convince you, they try to dumb you down, they try to belittle you with all these scientific facts. And they try to get you to see that your faith is over here and science is way over here and you've got to be crazy to believe what you believe in the Bible when we have all this science over here. Don't you believe in science? I think of Nacho Libre. I believe in science. (laughs) And if you haven't seen that movie, that's required homework for you. All for just that one line. I believe in science. So I want to show you that the science is actually on your side. It's on your side. Don't let them rip that carpet out from under your feet. The science is on your side. How do you know that? Well, we're going to get to it. Let's go through a couple of different mainstream views, and then we'll get to that backside of the paper, which is a chart. And that's what I really wanted to give to you because there's no way we can cover all those scripture and all those, um, whatever you want to call them, all those theories, propositions, scientific discoveries, and when they were discovered. So the first viewpoint, if you're looking at your handout, this is Roman numeral one, letter A, biblical creation. In other words, young earth theory. In other words, God created all of its life in its current form within 10,000 years. That's this church's view, and my goal today is not to necessarily defend this church's view to you. What I want to do is equip you with the stuff so that you can go out and defend your viewpoint of hopefully biblical creation. God created all life in its current form within 10,000 years. That's one viewpoint. That's the biblical viewpoint um, ascribed to from Genesis chapter 1. The next view is the day-age theory. And there are some believers who, who think this, that every time you see the word day in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, and God said, and, and he created this on the third day, and it was good. And then he created this on the fifth day, and it was good. That word day, they say, ascribes to a huge evolutionary period of millions of years. And you stack all those millions of years together, and now we can justify how we scientifically believe in evolution, but we can still be Christians and say we believe in the Bible. I'll talk about that word day in just a little bit. The next theory is the gap theory. You may have heard this one. It's a little more well-known. The gap theory says Millions of years occurred in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Well, let's look at them. Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pause. Millions of years go by. And then verse 2 happens, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, Jim, we can, we, can, we can join the scientific theory of evolution. By the way, it is a theory. Did you know that? Evolution has never been proven. 
It is, in fact, a theory. And hopefully, I don't know how it was presented in your education growing up, but it was presented to me as a theory. I was not told what to believe or why. I was presented, this is the facts, this is the creation theory, because let's be honest, none of us were there. This is the evolution theory. Again, none of us were there. So this gap theory says, okay, there's millions of years in between one and two. The next theory is called the literary framework theory. You might know this one by its more common term, theistic evolution. Theo or theist is another word for God. So God evolution. So God used evolution. And you have it there on your handout. God used some parts or, or processes of evolution to create life. And then last but not least, we have the Big Bang Theory. This is what Darwin believed in. Darwinism, or the Big Bang Theory, that millions of years ago, matter, given enough time and chance, matter blew up, slowly evolving into life. We had this primordial soup, and like a tadpole, somehow appeared in there and swam out, grew legs, and evolved into you and I. The Big Bang Theory. God was not involved. It was all evolution. So I kind of put them in what you would ascribe to as, as most right-wing. I guess that would be most fundamental, uh, most biblical, biblical creation. And then I stack them in order of all the way to the Big Bang Theory, which is a denial of God. And most people who would wholeheartedly espouse to the theory of evolution are also atheists. Because Colossians says everything was created by him and for him. Therefore, all of creation is accountable to God. And that doesn't fit with the evolutionary theory because if we're all accountable to God and there's rights and wrongs and there's morality and there's truth and error, then what do we do with all of this time and chance and chaos and, and, and all of this randomness? They don't know how to explain it. So let's talk about evolution as a whole. We're not going to take each one of these piece by piece. That would have to be a whole other sermon, unfortunately. We got to move. But if evolution is true, let me just give you a few quick facts. We're not going to be able to dive into these big time. But if evolution is true, the fossil record doesn't make sense. And you can... You can look up YouTube videos, you can read encyclopedia articles, you can even probably go back to your own high school biology textbook and read about all these apes, and, and they have all of these different names, and they try to present these, these fossils that were found, these part, like they, they might find one knuckle, and they're like, oh my gosh, let's name her Lucy. This is Lucy, and, and from like one knuckle bone, we have the whole thing, and we can somehow prove that this was a transitional fossil between monkeys and man. No, that's a lot of conjecture. That's a lot of hypothesis on one little pinky bone. Because here's the truth. Think about it logically. If evolution were true, then there should be millions, if not billions of fossils found every day, everywhere of transitional types. If we started as a tadpole in a cosmic pool, in a primordial soup, and now we are inventing Teslas and driving through tunnels in the air. Just go talk to Clay about it. I don't even know everything that's going on these days. 
then there should be billions of transitional fossils. It shouldn't be hard to find all kinds of ape-like creatures and even in, 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 in between um, the tadpole and the ape, there should be a ton of stuff there and there should be a ton of stuff here. It's, and it's, it's missing. They can't find it. There are no complete skeletal fossil remains that prove any type of ape-like man structure. It's not there. And you would think in 2021, with our advanced science and all of the archaeologists out there and the geologists that, that spend lifetimes studying this stuff, that something would have been found. And they'll present a thing or two every now and then, but the, the fossil record should be overwhelming if evolution is true. Think about it. If we've really been here for millions and millions of years, there should be billions and billions of fossils. Doesn't make, the fossil record doesn't make sense. Secondly, not only should we find fossils everywhere, it's layering. The way the, the fossil is stacked up, the geological column, if you will, the layering of these fossils should verify the timing of the evolutionary process. Yet, instead, why do we see fish fossils on the top of mountains? Why have archaeologists found dozens of marine biology fossils on the top of mountains with land mammals and even birds buried layers and layers underneath? That does not make sense in an evolutionary model. We got to keep going. Not only does the fossil record not make sense, but there should be new species every day. If we're constantly evolving, we should see species evolving all the time. Like your dog should be growing a fifth leg and you and I should be growing. I need a couple more hands. Let's be honest. I have four kids and only two hands. What's that? If evolution is true and I adapt to the needs of my environment, then I need four hands, and I haven't grown a third yet, much less a fourth. But evolution says natural selection weeds out the weak stuff, and we are constantly growing into the environment that we need to be in. I need a couple more hands. I don't have any. And then thirdly, if evolution is true, guys, this is such a skim level. I wish we could spend a whole month on this stuff, but you got to study it yourself. If evolution is true, both the first law and the second law of thermodynamics could be easily disproven. The first one says matter and energy stay the same. They change forms. They go back and forth between each other. Matter can become energy. Energy can become matter. But they stay the same. And there, there is a direct correlation between the amount of matter and the amount of energy. Albert Einstein proposed that theory. M or E equals MC squared. Right? But if evolution is true, and we have millions of years, and somehow something exploded in the universe, and we have a Big Bang theory where life evolved from nothing, then matter and energy should be easily proven as both dynamic, in other words, changing, and fluid. Dynamic and fluid. Matter and energy should be constantly going up and down, changing, uh, changing amounts, changing forms all the time. 
but it's not. And we've studied that. And Sir Isaac Newton put these scientific laws that can be observed, replicated, and found to be true, that matter and energy change forms, but they are constant and correlated. The second law basically is, you know it as the law of entropy. In other words, everything is trending toward chaos, destruction, randomness. But if evolution is true, everything should be evolving towards higher, better, more sophisticated, more organized. That's what evolution teaches. Everything's getting better. Last time I checked, if I leave Donovan in his room alone for 30 seconds, I come back to a tornado. Everything does not drift towards complexity. Everything drifts the opposite direction. And that's also scientifically, that one's called a law. That's not even a theory. These are called laws of thermodynamics. This, it can be proven and replicated. Okay, that's a, that is a super, super shallow viewpoint of what doesn't make sense about evolution scientifically. If creation is true, then guess what? Design is kind of explained. Chaos never results in order. Design demands a designer. Let me show you this golden ratio. You may know it as... Um, Mathematicians know it as the 1.08 times thing. This is a nautilus shell. In fact, most shells follow this structure of every chamber. If you, if you were to cut a nautilus shell in half, the innermost chamber is replicated and increased by 1.08. Exactly. And every chamber that keeps curling around that Nautilus is exactly 1.08 times the, the width of the previous chamber. That is extreme, complex design. Explain to me shells. If you believe in evolution, explain shells to me. How did that randomly, chaotically come about? By the way, this golden ratio, 1.08 times, is still used in mathematics. It's still used in finances. It's still used in architecture. They still use the principle of the golden ratio today. It's still used in photography. Architecture, photography, mathematics, finances. Secondly, I, don't, I didn't bring a watch today, but if creation is true, then design is explained because what evolution, if you want to really dumb it down, Evolution says everything that was needed for life to happen was in it like a big puzzle box, right? And they have all these pieces, and we see the picture. I mean, this, let's just pretend this is life. This is mankind in our current form, this beautiful picture of the world. All of this came about from the pieces that are in this box. Then, according to the theory of evolution, given enough time and chance, I could stand up here and shake this box and keep letting it fall all over the place. And eventually, given enough time and chance, I would open the lid and scatter the pieces and it would lay down as the perfect puzzle. Shall we try it? We're gonna try it. Given enough time and chance, every second is a million years, okay? Because we gotta preach fast. Every second's a million years. So it goes one million, two million, three million, four million, five million years. We're still shaking and we're still shaking. And suddenly, all of a sudden, it should end in the puzzle. Darn. 
Maybe some more time and chance. Maybe some more millions of years. Guys, is the puzzle ever going to land perfectly in place with the corners and the pieces lining up, given all the time and chance in the world? It's not, because design demands a designer. Complexity does not come from chaos. It doesn't. That's why creation makes more sense scientifically. Secondly, the origin of races and languages explained. If we all came from, the, from, from one ape-like creature, how in the world did we get so many different languages and races and colors and creeds and diversity? Who was here last week? We learned about our, our diverse God. Evolution has no explanation for diversity. Languages, skin colors, races. The Bible does. It says in Genesis chapter 11 that man thought he could reach God. They build a tower. God says, whoa, nobody's getting a piece of my glory. He busted it down. He confused the languages and everybody went to their likeness. So if I started speaking French, all of a sudden I'm going to go collect around other French speaking people and we're going to do, go do our France thing. And if I speak Japanese, then me and the Japanese people are going to go over here and do our Japanese thing. The Bible is the only book that offers an explanation about languages and race. And you can read a little bit more about that in the bullet points underneath it. Now let's get back to the use of the word day in Genesis chapter 1. The use of the word day in Genesis 1 is explained if, if creation is true. The Hebrew word for day used in Genesis chapter 1 is yom, Y-O-M. Everybody can say that, yom. It's a Hebrew word. A number and the phrase evening and morning are used for each of the six days of creation. And then outside, okay, fine. But what about that same word yom used elsewhere in scripture? Okay, it's used 410 times. Each time... In the context of where we find it in Scripture, it means an ordinary day. It never is referred to as an age or a phase or even equivalent to years. In fact, outside of Genesis 1, yom is used with the word evening or morning 23 times. Evening and morning appear in association, but without yom, 38 times. All 61 times, the text refers to an ordinary day. So why would Genesis 1 be the exception to the rule. It doesn't make sense. Science is on our side. All right, let's get to the good part. And sci- can I give you a better definition of what science even is, really? Science, if you're a biblical creationist, science is, is thinking God's thoughts after him. It's discovering God's hidden truths after he set them in motion. Now, this is not a science textbook. But when it does speak on science, it's 100% accurate. This is not a history manual. But when it speaks on the events of the past, it's 100% accurate. We have to take it at its word. Again, no pieces, no chapters, and not others. You can't keep one page and tear out the next. It's either all or nothing. Either, Either Christ died for sins of the world or he didn't. And that is directly related to what you believe about creation. 
If there's no right and wrong and we all just evolved, then who is God to say what sin is to begin with? Evolution teaches that you are your own God, that you evolve, you aspire, you grow, you change, you morph into what your environment dictates. But a holy God says, no, I've created, I've created diversity, I've created life forms, I've breathed everything into existence. So let's look back on the back of this hand. I'm going to grab one too, actually, if I can. Has anybody got a spare one? I'll take yours, Lisa. Thank you so much. The back of this form, this table, this chart is for you. And I just want to explain to you, just briefly, we're, just, we're only going to cover a couple of them because I'm at 27 minutes. We're only going to cover a couple of these verses that show how the Bible laid out a scientific phenomenon or process long before it was discovered. And again, when we look at these verses, know that this isn't a scientific textbook, but it does speak on science. We have a God of science in order. He created it. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis 2-7, man is made from dust. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature in an instant by the breath of God, made and composed his body from dust. Now, what did science discover? NASA's Ames Research Center confirmed, yes, the human body is comprised of the same 28 base and trace elements found in the earth's crust. Science confirmed what the Bible said a long time ago. Let's pick another one, Acts 17, 26. All races are from one blood. That's what the Bible says. Look at Acts 17. And he made it from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Everybody from one man. What did science say? In 1995, a study of a section of Y chromosomes from 38 men from different ethnic groups around the world was consistent with the biblical teaching that we all come from one man. Let's pick another one. How about the DNA one? DNA is your unique blueprint. Everybody has a code. Everybody's DNA is different. That's what makes you, you. That's what the Bible proposes in Psalms 139. Let's look at this one. For you were formed. Does that sound like random chaos? You were formed in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Think about a strand of DNA when you read this passage. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. I think 15 is up here too, yes or no? Yeah, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, sure, it doesn't come out and say, God made DNA, but it gives you the same visible image in your mind that you think of when you think of DNA, intricately woven together. You formed my inward parts. In the 1950s, Watson and Crick discovered the genetic blueprint for life. That wasn't that long ago. 
1950s. Steve Stacy said, amen. <laughs> amen, brother. I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> um, life is in the blood. This, guys, this one is crazy. Did you know, I'm going to start with the, the, uh, the end of the chart here. Did you know up until 120 years ago, Sick people were bled out. They thought that the sickness was in the blood, and so they would bleed people. George Washington, our first president, died because he got sick, and the doctor said, let's cut you open and bleed you out. Maybe we'll get the sickness out with the blood. That was only 120 years ago. Now what do you do? As soon as you're sick, when you go to the hospital, what's the first thing they give you? A blood transfusion. The Bible said this in Leviticus. Way back, chapter 17 and verse 14, it says, For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. We just figured that out 120 years ago in this world that we live in. Brilliant, aren't we? Laughter is good for health. You can read that one on your own. 1979, they found out about that. How about currents in the ocean? In 1847, Matthew Murray, the father of oceanography, discovered and mapped out the currents in the ocean, and it helps describe a lot about our weather, a lot about climate change, and all that good stuff. Guess what? The Bible said, bruh, there's currents in the ocean. Read David. He wrote about it in Psalms 8.8. Back one. The birds of the heaven, and we're picking up in the middle of a of a chapter here of David, so it's not going to make total sense. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever, passes along, what's the last phrase? The paths of the sea. There's paths in seas, yes. Water flows in currents. You've all seen the map. The meteorologist will throw up the map when he's describing how a hurricane moves through the Gulf or maybe it moves through the Atlantic or maybe it goes down south. All of that is determined upon... The currents, the paths of the sea. Gravity's in there, Job 38. Look at that one. How about the ice age, right? That's cool because there's a movie about it. And, and all of us know about the ice age, the glacial period. Did you know that's in the Bible, Job 38? The person commonly credited with discovering the ice age is the Swiss naturalist Louis, I don't know, you can, you can try for yourself, but it's right there, 1807 to 1873. I guess this is a whole lifespan. I don't know when he actually put it out there that there was an ice age. But Job 38 said it, the waters became hard like stone and the face of the deep, that means the tundra, that means the earth's crust is frozen. And you might know if you're a student of the Bible, Job was actually the first book in your Bible to be ever written, not Genesis. Job was the first book describing an ice age. What's another cool one? We have a little bit of time left, and then we'll be done. How about the size of the universe, the number of stars? Just 10 years ago, in 2010, a Yale astronomer, Peter, we're just going to call him Peter, he just tripled, again, he just tripled the estimated number of stars in the universe from the previous estimate of, oh, just 100 sextillion and I don't even know what that means. But there was a hundred sextillion, and now Peter's like, oh no, we got that way wrong. We're gonna triple that today. And and I guess he, he goes to Yale, so he has the authority to do that. So now science is based upon Peter's three times the 100 sextillion. Well, they could have just opened their Bible to Jeremiah 33. It says already, as the host of heaven, 
That means planets, galaxies, and stars, okay? So it's not just limited to what we can see right here in our Milky Way, but who knows what's out there? And that's exactly the point of this passage. God's saying, bro, you don't know what's out there. You don't even know what I've created. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. Obviously, the last part of the verse is irrelative to our study today, but the point is the stars, the galaxies, the universes cannot be numbered. And we're still trying to figure that out here in 2010. Let's just do two more. Let's drop down to physics. And I did kind of break these up for you under headings. So if you like one over the other, and guys, just so you know, this is like one-tenth of what I could have put on this paper. There's so much. So research for yourself. Go, go do some, some Google searches or DuckDuckGo searches. <laughs> had to throw that in there for Danny in the back. DuckDuckGo! Don't use Google. They're watching you. Or you can use uh, YouTube or whatever you want to do. But it was only in 1646 that the French scientist Blaise Pascal tested his theory that air has different weights at different heights. Job, again, the first book ever written, described it in chapter 28 when he said he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. By the way, this isn't on there. Did you know that we have the same amount of water on the earth that's always been here? It's called the water cycle. You can read it. It's the only one under meteorology right there. But rain comes from the ocean and then falls and then goes back to the ocean. That whole water cycle of evaporation and precipitation and all that condensation business, it's all laid out in Scripture. You can read about it in Ecclesiastes. But air, the first part of this, air has weight. They didn't know that until 1646. How about atomic disintegration? In other words, entropy. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But on the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Way back here in Peter, he's describing entropy. He's describing the scene of the end of the world, how everything is going to come to nothing. Everything's going to be destroyed. By the way, don't lay up your treasure here. It's going to go. But we just discovered, and I say we because I'm buddies with Sir Isaac Newton, in 1687, we put out the theory of the second law of motion. In other words, entropy, atomic. Guys, I hope this is a good resource for you. It's a starting point. It's a starting point. I want you to do your own research. But let's go back to Colossians 1.17 and close. And listen, the next six weeks are going to be like this, so get ready. A lot more teaching than preaching, a lot more handouts, a lot more classroom-style stuff, if you will. But I hope it'll be helpful for you in knowing why you believe what you believe. But there's a specific part of Colossians 1.17. If we can go back and put that one on, it's here already. Harley's so good at this. And he is before all things, speaking of Jesus, the creator, and in him, all things hold together. Let's talk about that phrase, hold together. I'm going to show you this YouTube clip. 
It's by a man named, a preacher named Louis Giglio. The tour was winding down last time around. We were in Tyler, Texas. The night was over. A guy walks up to me. I wish I could tell you the whole story. It was so of God. Introduces himself to me. Says, how are you doing? I just want to say hello. I said, it's nice to meet you. He says, you guys winding the tour down. Uh, where are you going to go from here? I said, well, I'm on my way back home to Atlanta, Georgia. He said, well, what's next for you? I said, I'm going to be preaching the next two Sundays for my pastor back in Atlanta. He said, oh, cool. What are you preaching on? I said, well, the series is on the glory of God and the human body. He said, that's really amazing. I'm a molecular biologist at the university down the road. Give me your talk. And I was like, oh, wow. I wasn't quite yet ready to unload the talk for a molecular biologist. So I kind of stumbled through what I had, and he's kind of being kind and gracious and like, uh-huh, that's good. And then he says, well, what's your big left hook? You got to have a left hook, a big finish, right? I said, I don't have a left hook yet. He said, oh, Louie. Oh, man, your left hook is laminin. And I'm, I'm totally blank on laminin. And he goes, Louie, it's a cell adhesion molecule. Protein molecule? Do you know about proteins? I'm like, no. He said, Louis, cells organize into certain molecular structures, and that determines what protein there are. There are between 10 and 60,000 proteins in the human body. We don't even know how many proteins are in the human body. But one of them is a cell adhesion molecule. It's organized into this certain structure, and that tells the cell what its job is in the body. And this one is a cell adhesion molecule. And I'm like... All right. He said, no, Louis, it's like the rebar of the human body. The steel they put in the concrete when they lay the foundations of things, it's that stuff. It's, it's holding your membranes together. It's the glue of the human body, Louis. It's laminin. You've got to tell them about laminin. And I'm like, I promise you, I'm going home and tell them about laminin. And I'm sure when I do, revival is going to sweep across the church and probably around the world when I tell them. He said, no, 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 no. You've got to see laminin. I'm like, okay, I see it. He said, no, 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 you need to go look it up online. You need to go Google laminin. I don't even know how to spell laminin. <laughs> Takes his card out, he writes on the back, L-A-M-I-N-I-N. I'm like, okay, I cannot wait to get to my computer and get on Google, click on images, type in laminin, and I'm waiting, and these little thumbnails come up on the screen, and I'm like, Laminin, the cell adhesion molecule. Woo! <laughs> I am so excited. I am beside myself. I cannot believe what I'm seeing. I love laminin. I'm so fired up. <laughs> you should see laminin, I guess. That's the thing, right? Okay. Here is a scientific diagram of the laminin cell adhesion molecule that's holding your body together right now, okay? This is what I found right here. No, come on, that's crazy. That's just crazy. I'm, I just can't believe it. I emailed that guy back so fast, I'm like, wow, 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 what in the world? He said, you want to see an actual laminin molecule? I'm like, oh, no, man. The diagram was cool for me. I'm happy with that. Don't, don't bother sending anything else. I'm like, yes! And he sends me this image, an electron microscopic image of an actual 
laminin protein molecule. It looks just like this. I'm like, how crazy is that? That the stuff that holds our bodies together, that's holding the lining of your organs together, holding your skin on, is in the perfect shape of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately I'm thinking about the words of Paul in Colossians 1. You know this beautiful passage where Paul's talking about the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. He says, for by him, talking about Jesus Christ, all things have been created, things in heaven and things on earth. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. But then the next verse goes on to say this. It's crazy. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, that is, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. It's right, it's right there. I'm like, of course they do. Of course they do. Everything holds together in Jesus Christ. And he goes on at the end of this paragraph, and he just tells the story of grace. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Amen. That's our God. So creative, so complex. Isn't that cool? Again, science backing up that Jesus physically and literally holds all things together. Do you know that creator? That's my question as we close is, do you know him? Do you know him as your personal savior? Because if not, man, you're missing out and everything begins to make sense when you do, when you know him. You, you understand the complexity of who you are. You understand the order and the design in this world around us. The science, folks, it's on your side, not theirs. Let's pray. God, we praise your name. We glorify your name for being the creator and how gracious you are to include us. And we pray that as we go out and live our lives and talk about our faith and talk about our God to those and we're going to run into some people who share opposing beliefs and who say, oh, faith is just a crutch. What about science? I, I lean on science. And God, I pray that you would equip us with the facts, equip us with just the knowledge to graciously and softly be able to answer for our faith, to answer for why we believe in biblical creation. I pray, God, that, that you would teach us and, and remind us that those scientific facts are yours to begin with. You made science. You developed science. And we get to discover and uncover all of those hidden truths after you. Thank you for being a God worth worshiping, studying, learning about. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.